through the prayer wall on our website. So today, we are going to take you step-by-step on how to use this tool. First, go to our website at marianmethodist.org. At the top of the screen, you will see a prayer request link. When you click this link, you will see the various prayer requests posted on our prayer wall. As you read and pray over these requests, you can let the person know someone has prayed for them by clicking the I prayed for this button. The prayer count will be updated to show the number of times this request has been prayed for. If you want to submit your own request, click the gray Share Your Request button on the top of the page. Here you can enter your name, your email, your phone number, and you can type your prayer request in the space below. Your contact information is only seen by the church staff and is not posted with the request. You can also choose how your request is shared. If you want your name included with your prayer request, choose Share This. If you prefer to submit your request anonymously, you can do that as well. And if you want your prayer request seen only by the church staff, simply choose Do Not Share This. Below your typed prayer request, you can select if you would like email notifications when someone prays for your request, and you can choose to have your request shared on Marian Methodist Twitter feed. When you are all finished, click the Submit Request button, and your prayer request will be sent to one of our staff members for confirmation. Once we have seen it, your request will be posted to the prayer wall. Usually, you can expect to see your request posted after a few minutes. We sincerely hope that the prayer wall is helpful to you and that you will incorporate this tool into your own prayer life. For more information, email info at marianmethodist.org or call the church office.
disciple Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried away him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am returning to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene, went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord, and she told them that he had said these things to her. Um, just a, a quick moment of prayer. You know, normally uh, Vicki is with us on Sunday mornings, Vicki Stanley, our director of pastoral care, but she, uh, first time in 10 years, yesterday she called me and said, I can't make it. She's Got a back problem, and if you've ever struggled with that, not great. So be praying for Vicki. She's actually hospitalized right now, so I'd be praying for her. Um, and I'd ask, too, as we go, uh, would you take a minute and pray for me, because I am fixing to preach the gospel. God, we ask your blessing today that as this man, fallible, frail, broken, mortal, stands before this people, that you might come with that which is unbreakable, immortal, perfect. Speak through the words that are heard to the hearts that are gathered here so that they may find an opening and be let in, and that we might be found for you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray. 
Amen. Now, I know it's three Sundays to Easter, and I, I know what some of you might have thought when, when you came and you saw this and the resurrection songs and all that. You say, why can't we just wait? This is, this is just like the stores. As soon as the back-to-school sales go out, in comes the Halloween candy. As soon as the Halloween candy goes out, in comes the Christmas candy. As soon as the Christmas candy is out, in comes the Valentine's Day candy. Why can't we just wait? Why can't we in the North American culture just wait for things to get here? Well, I, I, I want to affirm what you're thinking and say this about that. Martin Luther wrote this 500 years ago. Every Sunday is supposed to be a little Easter. Every Sunday is supposed to be a little Easter, and we're supposed to celebrate and worship like that. Of your generation, of these guys' generation down here in the front, there's a guy named De- Jeff Dublin. He's one of the preachers in the Emerging Church. He preaches to 300 people on a Sunday morning, and sometimes his sermons get a more than a million hits on YouTube. But he says this about Sunday mornings. He says, our Sundays are consistently to be a resurrection event. Our Sunday mornings are consistently to be a resurrection event. So, we're not so far off. We yearn for the heart of our faith. We yearn for the center of that which is true for us, which is Easter. We love it. And I tell you what, if you've never been to Marian Methodist for an Easter before, we love Easter here. We throw ourselves down on Easter. We have a, a routine that we've been doing for years, at least the last 13. And I'll tell you what, I've stood in this place or pretty close to it the last 13 years and told this story. And every time I tell it, people say, make sure you tell it again. There was, a, at the beginning of the Soviet Russia, so a generation or more ago, there was a communist leader named Bukharin. And the communists, you know, they hate Christianity. They're atheistic by nature, and that's what Bukharin's point was. He came to to speak to 10,000 people that were not there because they wanted to, but they were forced to be there, and he came to speak, and his subject was atheism, and he was going to, in an hour's time, brick by brick, take down the tenets of the Christian faith and smash them out on the stage in front of the people that had gathered there so that he hoped that at the end, when he was done, all he would see was the smoldering ashes of people's former Christian faith. And after he talked for an hour on the values of the atheistic culture, on the atheistic life, he simply said, are there any questions? Assuming there would be none because of his great gift in speaking, he stood still. Are there any questions? And from this side of the stage, a little old man walked up slowly, came to the microphone, stepped into the microphone, and then in the words of the ancient Orthodox greeting, he simply said, Christ is risen. And the entire congregation responded with, He is risen indeed. Now, I want you to use that for a few minutes. Every time I say Christ is risen, you say? Because you see, <clears throat> I, I agree with those that have come before me, Luther. I agree with Jeff Dublin that when we come to Sunday, when we come to any Sunday, we come here hoping that the joy of Easter, the joy of Jesus will pour out on us from, from whether it's the music, the prayers, the, the people in the pews around us. And we pray that the joy of Easter, the joy of celebrating the Christian walk will pour on others because here, right here at the empty tomb, this is what we love. See, in the darkness, some women come to anoint a corpse, but they could not because Christ is risen. 
Indeed he has. And the disciples sprint to the place. James and, and Peter seem, or John and Peter seem to be in a foot race to get to that place. And, and they come with great confusion. And when they poke their heads in, what they see is not what they expect because Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. And we celebrate the fact that the stone was rolled back. Not so that Jesus could get out, but that we could get in to see that Christ is risen. Indeed he has. And Mary stood crying engaged in a conversation with the Jesus that she sought, but she could not recognize him because she was not looking for what she saw. Christ is risen. Indeed he has. You see, we we don't think, Keith and I, as we've planned out these sermons, as we've planned this sermon series, we don't think the Holy Spirit made a mistake by having us preach Easter Sunday three weeks before Easter. We, We don't think that's wrong. As a matter of fact, what we, what we tend to believe is, is it's not that we can't wait to get there. It's that I believe we were brought here. I believe that we were brought to this part of the Scripture to prepare for that great day that's coming. I, I think we were brought to this Scripture so that it might just wash over us, that the depth and richness of the meaning of the, the, the resurrection of Jesus might wash over us so that when we come to that great day and that there's lilies and, 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 and Easter flowers around us and we're preparing for family occasions and all that kind of stuff, we will not miss the truth of the matter that Christ is risen. Indeed, he has. Now, in the, in, in the Gospel of John, in, in chapter 20, there are several resurrection appearances. The first is this one that we're reading about, is Easter morning at the empty tomb, when Jesus and Mary have this conversation. The second is later that same day on Easter itself, when Jesus meets with the disciples without Thomas. Thomas is not there. But then, and hear this, Christians, the third one, and we'll deal with this next week too, is Jesus meeting with the disciples a week later, on the week after Easter, on that Sunday night, with the disciples plus Thomas. Now, that's important for us because I I need you to understand what is true in Christianity, is that the resurrection is a once and for all event. It lasts from the moment of Easter to all time, but it is not a one-day event. So many Christians tend to think that Easter happened and that was that. No, Jesus appeared, it it tells us in the Gospels, for 40 days after Easter, physically teaching up to 500 people, over 500 people witnessed him, and Jesus continued to teach. So, see, Jesus appearing those three times is just the tip of the iceberg. But we're going to look at just this one today. With tears in her eyes, Mary turns from the tomb and the angels to whom she was speaking in there. And comes face to face with Jesus, who asks her, who is it you're looking for? Who, who is it that you're looking for? Now, that's a logical question for a gardener, you know, in a cemetery. I've never been a cemetery gardener, but I would assume that from time to time they come upon grieving people. That, that people have their eyes so filled with tears that they really can't find what they're, what they're looking for. And so it's a logical question for a gardener to come to someone. And so when Mary hears the question, she's thinking at some level, well, that's what a gardener would ask me. Who are you looking for? I mean, I've been in really large cemeteries sometimes, and it is hard to find the grave that you're looking for. But, but Mary's eyes were so covered with grief that she just couldn't see who she was looking at. You see, Mary was seeking a dead Jesus, so she couldn't find him because he wasn't dead. 
He was not dead. He, he was alive. See, there's no logic in Mary's mind right then, you see, because I don't know how big Mary was. I don't know how small she was. But the request she made of the gardener was, tell me where she, he is so I can carry him away, so I can put him somewhere. I don't know how many of you women in here think that you could pick up a dead version of me and carry it somewhere, but not too many. That's why it's called dead weight. It doesn't help you carry it. Mary's not thinking in those terms. She's just thinking about what she wants. But here's the thing. In her condition, seeking for a dead Jesus, she was in no condition and she had no chance of finding him because he was not dead. See, for all her searching, it was not Mary who found Jesus. It was Christ who found Mary. For for all her searching, she didn't come upon Jesus. He came to her. See, that's the usual experience of Christ in our lives. We might be looking, but he's finding us. See, God is seeking us in every situation. You guys need to know this. God is seeking us no matter what the situations we find in our lives. It was Jesus who, in John chapter 4, went seeking a Samaritan woman. He saw her at the well. She wasn't looking for him. But he found her and told her everything about her life and called her to a life of repentance. It was Jesus that was walking through the streets of Jericho and saw Zacchaeus up in the tree who was just being a voyeur on the whole events. And it was Jesus that saw him and said, Zacchaeus, come on down because I'm coming to eat at your house today. It was Jesus who, before they knew what they were looking for, saw these 12 disciples that were looking for some sort of fulfillment in their life, and he went to them, and he called them and said, Come, follow me. I have everything you need. But in her grief, in her brokenness, Mary could not see Jesus. So Jesus found Mary. See, Mary was blinded by what she was looking for. She was not receiving or seeing what God was giving her. See, I'd said this at all the services prior to this one, and this seems to hit a note because we know this. See, grief can utterly blind us. Grief can cause such desolation in our lives that we cannot see what's happening around us. We cannot see what we're looking for. I, as you know, many of you know, um, Teresa and I have are in a tender part of our life because just a few months ago her her father died and and uh when we were in chicago um preparing for a funeral and uh, waiting in a hotel uh night before um her mother was on the phone she had her cell phone in her hand and she was in the phone and she was in a room with my daughter and tiny was going around and she was talking but she was rifling through through her room she was like a normal woman she had three purses so she was rifling through all those she was rifling through her suitcase looking in the bathroom talking on her phone saying to her son mijo 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 i cannot find my phone now we can say oh we've had that it's a senior moment but let me tell you what's going on here this is so human To be blinded by our grief. To not be able to see from where we are to what's right in front of us. Mary is so blinded by her grief, she cannot see. But understand that this is the gospel message. Like Mary, we must see that Jesus was not carried away by others. Jesus is the only one that can carry himself away. It was him who made the choice to be on the cross. No one forced him to that. And it was him, by his choice, who carried himself 
away from death. It's him alone who has the power to take up life alone. And it's him who can give your life life. See, that's what we're to see and receive here today. So I want to take it to the context of your own situations. I want to take this question to the context of your own life and simply ask you, who is it that you're looking for? Who is it that you're looking for? You know, are you simply looking for yourself? I can't tell you how many people I've come across in my life that have just said, oh, Mike, I just need to go find myself. I need to take a couple months off work. I need to quit my job. I need to go find myself. And when they're younger, they all go to Colorado, smoke weed, and find themselves, right? But we got to go find ourselves, you know. And, and so many people, when, when you're just, I, I just want to admonish you here, when you're trying to find yourself, what you're really looking for at its base level is you're looking to be relieved. You're looking to be relieved that what you believe is all right, that you're okay, that everything's going to be all right, that your way is just fine, and all you ever need in life is yourself. You can be a world of one. Everybody else can be the planets, but you are the sun. When we're just trying to look at ourselves, that's what happens. And many, many, many of my friends and your friends find themselves spending their whole life looking for themselves, looking to be relieved of whatever it is that they find, but I, I, I are looking for. And I want to tell you this, because I know it to be true. We need to look to be received. We need to look for God, not for ourselves. I, I'll tell you what, I have found myself. I have found myself, and I find myself lacking. I find myself unable to put every word in the right order so that they never hurt anybody else. Have you found yourself that way? I have found that some of my best intentions fall short of best results for myself or other people. I have found myself to be quite a bit fallible in most circumstances, and I have found myself unable to sustain the world and all of its inhabitants. I, frankly, am not enough to keep this thing going. What I need is to be received by something much larger than me. What I need is oneness with God. What I, what I need is for God to help me understand, no, Mike, you are not okay on your own, but you will just be fine with me. And you will be more than fine. You will have a fullness of life. My life, and I suspect yours, <clears throat> needs to be intimately connected with something much greater than ourselves. So who are you looking for? Who are you looking for in your life? In the context of Mary meeting Jesus in the garden, let me remind you of three things. First, do not search for a dead Jesus. Do not search for a dead Jesus. I've, I've been to Israel a number of times. One of my favorite things to do there is to go to the tomb of Jesus. But here's the issue. There's two. Did you know that in Christian tradition? The Eastern Orthodox Church believes that the place of Jesus being taken by Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus and laid in what was they thought would be his final resting place is inside what's known as the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. The Church of the Holy Sepulchre, the Holy Tomb, is inside 
the holy city of Jerusalem. It's a big building the size of this whole building with our education building. In the, and inside that, there's a building within the building. And inside that little building, which is about half the size of our chapel, there is this rock bed. It's hewn rock. It's, it's a bed. It looks like a place where you'd lay a body. And the whole Eastern Orthodox Church, all the denominations that worship there, believe that this is the place that when they took him down from the cross, they laid Jesus of Nazareth, our Christ, to lay in the grave. And they closed it up. About 250 yards or so this way, out the Damascus Gate of Jerusalem, next to the hill that's known as Golgotha, the place of the skull, Mount Calvary, there is a tomb in a garden. The tomb has the requisite big round rock, the, the trough for it to, to, to roll down, and a little cave. And when you walk into this cave, there are six or eight beds, stone beds, hewn into the rock on which bodies could be laid. And you know, we're Americans. We're people. We want empirical answers. So when you're there, you, you say, okay. You ask your guide, say, okay. So which one is really the tomb of Jesus? Which one is the grave where, where Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea laid him? And the guides always say the same thing. I remember our little guide in his little English accent says, oh, sir. We may never find the grave of Jesus Christ. We may never find the place where Joseph of Arimathea laid our king. And it does not matter. Because you see on Easter Sunday, there was no one there. Don't look for a dead Jesus. Don't go seeking him because you cannot find him. You see, if a grave cannot hold him, don't you try to hold on to him. See, so, so many people I see have, have miniaturized Jesus. You know, we, we get a, a crucifix or a, or a cross and we wear it around our, our neck. We get a tattoo on our bicep or our chest and we say we have Jesus. We, we look at a stained glass window and say that's Jesus. We put Jesus' artwork in our house or make a sculpture or something like that. Let me help you understand this. Don't try to miniaturize Jesus. You cannot hold Jesus in your hands, but he will hold you in his don't, don't call Jesus your homeboy as if you own him. You don't own Jesus. Jesus owns you. And there's a significant difference here. You can't look for something that you can miniaturize because you see, he is the Lord. He is alive in the world. He's been set free and set loose by his own power and he gives what he has to give. He does not give you death because he is the God of life. He gives you life and life abundantly. So don't search for a dead Jesus. And secondly... Be found by the God who is looking for you. Be found by the God who is looking for you every single day. He never gives up. See, the point of the gospel in every situation is that God is seeking you out. God is always seeking you out. You have to understand this. It's, it's imperative to the Christian faith, which is our answer to so many people's questions who say, I don't think that's true, Pastor Mike. See, you and I have met people that we know the answer to their problems, the answers to the difficulties in their life, is the Lord Jesus Christ and the love that he brings. And yet we'll say to them, maybe you'll invite them to church, maybe you'll invite them to prayer, maybe you'll say, oh, I just want to encourage you because it's something I found in the Bible and, and share with you. And they'll say, God doesn't want any part of me. As if. Here's the thing, God wants every part of you. 
God's not pleased with every part of, of me. He knows that some things are, or some parts of me are pristine and holy and other places are dark and dirty and they need to be scrubbed pretty hard by his blood to get, get them clean. But he wants every part of me and he wants every part of you too. And he wants every part of your friends. And you know you've had friends where you've said, oh, come to Jesus. And they'll say this. Uh, this is one that, that, that really slays me. They'll say, God doesn't even know who I am. I, I've never been sure. I, I, God doesn't know who I am. Nothing could be further from the absolute truth. Let me give you the Pastor Mike's version of Psalm 139. Before you was, God was thinking about you. Now, the revised standard version of the Bible says, before you were knit in your mother's womb, God knew you. So every human being that ever lived, God knew before they came to live on this earth. And looking for them. Right now, another thing people say to me all the time, well, God doesn't care about my problems. God doesn't care about my low problems. You know, you can look it up. It's in Matthew 6, verse 30, 35, somewhere in there. It says in there, God cares about every pigeon that lives in the steeple at Marion Methodist. Amen? It doesn't say those exact words, but it does say that God cares about all the birds of the field, so how much more he cares about you? God cares about your problems big and small. And here's the one I, I, I hate to hear, but it comes to me all the time. and says, well, I can't go to God. I didn't grow up religious. Let me tell you something, friends. I didn't grow up bald, but I attained it. <laughs> right? You can attain those things to which you're pointed at. So, so you don't have to grow up religious to, 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 to know what God cares about because God cares about you. You are exactly what God cares about. He loves you the way you are. He may not leave you the way you are, but he loves you exactly as you are. And he's searching for you. He's trying like water finds its way down hills. He is trying to find an opening into your heart where you will let him in so that you might know. Let me be clear about this. If you have lost Christ, if someone has turned the spiritual rheostat down on your faith, if you have gotten thin in your faith, if your faith seems all dried up, if you're in the dark night of the soul. Be sure of this. God is looking for you. And he will not give up. He is a loving father that will not stop looking for that which is his. He will not easily let you go. He wants you back and he's going to seek you till he finds you. So let me tell you, be found. Be found. This week, uh, had a little, little boy, Owen, came into my office, two and a half years old. He brought his brother, because his brother's getting baptized at one of our services next week. He brought his dad, too, because he doesn't know how to drive. He's only two and a half. But during the half-hour conversation, as you can imagine, a two-year-old at one point uh, didn't care so much about the conversation anymore. So he got down, and he decided that he and Pastor Mike were playing hide-and-go-seek in his office. And I'm a grandfather in training, so I said, okay, I'll, I'll give it a crack. And, you know, Owen hides. He goes over beside, you know, a plant, and he goes like this. He's looking at you. You've played hide-and-go-seek with a little kid, haven't you? They don't want to be hidden that long. They love the part of hide-and-seek found. They love it when you turn the corner and you say, there you are, Owen, and you scoop them up in their arms and you give them home. They love the moment when they're playing hide-and-go-seek that a loving parent, a loving grandparent, someone that seems to care about them, grabs them up and says, I found you. And that's what we all want. Don't make it complicated. Don't, don't, don't make this more difficult than it is. 
Don't, don't make it hard. Be found. Be found by the God who is ceaselessly looking for you. And look for and receive what God is giving you. See, here's Mary's fault. Mary missed what God was giving her. Himself. She missed that he was giving her himself. And this is what God gives you too. Himself. He, he gives you oneness in life and purpose. So look for that. And receive what God is giving you. Which is himself. Now, Holy Communion in our church commemorates this. So I'm going to give you some very clear instructions and give you an invitation as we go to the last moment, the high point of any Christian worship service. In the United Methodist Church, we make this invitation. If you have been found by God and you absolutely know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you are His and He is yours, then this is for you. If you're in the process of still being found by God and you're not so sure that, that you know God firsthand, we invite you to this because this might be the moment where you get to meet him first, firsthand. This might be the moment where you are found by Jesus right here on your knees at Marion Methodist on this particular day in March of 2016. So please know that you're invited. It doesn't matter like it says on the screen. It doesn't matter to us where your creed is. If you came up Baptist, Roman Catholic, Russian Orthodox, it doesn't matter to us. What matters is that you want to be found or you have been found by Jesus. So when the call is made, come and eat and drink at your Lord's table. We take communion in a very simplistic, straightforward manner here. We ask you to come down. I don't think we usher people this this service. We just let you come. There's offering plates over there. But first, you'll, you'll take a piece of bread by your own hand. And if you're gluten intolerant, there's gluten-free bread in there. If you need it, you'll know what it is. Take, take some of that, one piece, and then dip it into the cup and put it in your mouth. And then come towards the center aisle, if you would, and stop for a minute or five and, and pray here on your knees that, that, that the God that is looking to find you or has found you might be praised and, and glorified in your life. And then return to your seats. Uh, through this center aisle, if, if you would. Now, um, we know what communion's all about. But sometimes I think a picture is worth a thousand words. So let me share you these things. See, what the disciples were looking for was a full life. And to God's glory, Jesus found them. And they allowed themselves to be found and they served him. And he offered them eternal and earthly oneness with him. And that's why there's one loaf, because we can be at one with Christ. There's one loaf because this we know to be true. There is one body. And because of that one body, Jesus reaches to all the, curs- the, the, the persons that have ever lived and will ever live in this world and say, this is for you. And so when we eat the bread, understand that we eat the bread on behalf of all Christians who understand that on the last night of his life, Jesus took a loaf of bread. He broke it. He offered it to his disciples and said, take and eat for this bread that you have seen broken before you. A bread that will be laid in the tomb, a body that will be laid in a tomb, but can't be held there. This is for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. And as there is one loaf, there is one cup. But it has 
a distinct message to it as well. The one loaf shares with us that all of us are available for the saving power that is Jesus Christ. But the cup represents that you individually, specifically, uniquely, are offered forgiveness and new life through Jesus Christ, which is why he says that his la- the supper we call last to his disciples, he gives thanks to his Father in heaven, and then he says, drink from this, all of you, for in this cup is the wine which represents my blood, which is shed for you and for many, for the forgiveness of sins. And as often as you drink this wine, remember me. And so in remembrance of all of God's mighty acts of salvation, we eat the bread, we drink the wine, reminding ourselves and being reminded by the power of the Holy Spirit that there is one way to become one with God, one way to Him, and that is simply to receive what Christ gives. To receive what Christ is giving you and giving me, and that's Himself. We're a faith of a relationship, but do we have structure? Yes. But we're not a a, a faith of rules and regulations. We're a faith based on a relationship. So this is your moment to receive what Christ gives to you, his very self. Give, Give the stewards and I a moment to get in place and then come and eat and drink at your Lord's table.